can imagine that it would be very easy for Christians that are undergoing persecution and oppression to lose their proper perspective on their relationship with God. In fact, I believe that's one of the things that Peter was striving to warn against when he wrote his first letter. As he was writing to Christians who had been scattered over Asia Minor, facing persecution and troubled times, how easy it might have been for them to have forgotten their relationship with God. Or to believe, perhaps, that God had forgotten His relationship with them. And in 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 9, Peter was writing to remind these Christians about their relationship with God. As we examine this verse, we find that the overarching theme that Peter wanted to get across to the brethren at this time was that we are God's. In 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 9, the text said, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who has called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. Peter, calling on phrases from the Old Testament that described Old Testament Israel, looks at the church for today and for his time and says, This is what you are. And each of these four statements where he says you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. Each of them are to remind us that we are God's. We belong to Him. He is our Father, and we are His children. I'd like for us to examine these statements found in 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 9, and just notice exactly what they say about us and about our relationship with God. The text begins by saying, we are a chosen race. New American Standard uses the term race. If you've got the King James or the New King James, I believe it probably uses the term generation. But regrettably, either one of these words, or I should say neither one of these words, really captures the meaning behind this, this word. The word genos doesn't just refer to a race of people or a nation, as it's often translated. Sometimes it's translated country, sometimes it's translated kind, generation, race, depending on the translation. But every time this word is used throughout the New Testament, it always carries the idea of being connected by birth, being connected by family. You can look at Acts chapter 4 and verse 6. In Acts chapter 4 and verse 6, it speaks of Annas, the high priest, was there, and Caiaphas, and John, and Alexander, and all who were of high priestly descent. Same word. Yours may say that the priestly, the priest's kindred, or it might even use the word family there. Look in verse 36 of the same chapter, Acts chapter 4 and verse 36. Now Joseph, a Levite of Cyprian birth, who was also called Barnabas by the apostles, which translated means son of encouragement. Here, where it says Cyprian birth, or yours might say of the country of Cyprus, the word country there, or birth in the New American Standard, is the same word here. But what's it saying? It's not talking about just being in that land, but it's talking about from where they were born, the group of people that they were a part of, the family or the kindred. One more example, look in Acts chapter 7 and verse 13. In Acts chapter 7 and verse 13, speaking of Joseph, Acts chapter 7 and verse 13, as Stephen was preaching, he said on the second visit, Joseph made himself known to his brothers, and Joseph's 
family was disclosed to Pharaoh. Family. That same word. Yours may say kindred. That's the same word that's used here when it talks about being a chosen race. And so when Peter pointed out to us that we are a chosen race, he was pointing out that we are God's family. We are His kindred. His relations. We hold a relationship with family. He's our Father. And we are His children. What a relationship we have as Peter is impressing that upon those who have been persecuted and oppressed. He says, don't forget, you're God's family. But not just any family. You're the chosen family. I think there's something very important to note here. No doubt we are born again into Christ. In John chapter 3 and verse 3, John chapter 3 and verse 3, Jesus answered and said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And then in verse 5 of John 3, he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. We find here that, yes, we are born into the kingdom of God, and yet this is not some kind of physical birth that just naturally happens or could accidentally happen. Peter is pointing out to us that we aren't gods just because we were born that way. We're gods because He chose us. Thus, the Scripture uses the term adoption to refer to our being God's children. He handpicked us. He chose us. What a comfort that is to know that God has chosen us to be His family, chosen us who have submitted to Him in baptism and accepted us as part of His family. And the great thing about this is that we can look back and we can see how awful we've been. And at times we may begin to think, especially if things start going bad, that, well, God's giving me what I deserve. He's left me. It's over. But Peter's pointing out, no, you are His chosen family. He chose you. Even when He knew how awful you had been. Remember the passage we read this morning in Romans chapter 5? Romans chapter 5. This time we're going to begin in verse 6. In Romans chapter 5, beginning at verse 6, Paul said, For while we were still helpless, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for the good man someone would even dare to die. But God demonstrates His own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. God did the work that would make us His family even when He knew how sinful we were. He chose us. And so we do not have to worry as we go through this life that somehow we might just fall off out of the book of life through some type of heavenly red tape or because of God's oversight. He chose us. He knows those who are His. He doesn't forget us. And we recognize, of course, in the context of Peter, that we are kept by faith. First Peter chapter 1 and verse 5, who are protected by the power of God through faith for salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. And that's exactly what Peter is striving to get these Christians to do, to remember they need to keep their faith. Not lose the faith because they think God may have lost them, but to remember that we are God's chosen family. And here in this statement, he is providing the same assurance that Paul provided back in Romans chapter 8. In Romans chapter 8, beginning at about verse 35, Paul, providing the same kind of consolation and comfort, says, Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? Just as it is written... 
for your sake we are being put to death all day long. We were considered as sheep to be slaughtered. But in all these things we overwhelmingly conquer through Him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. God has chosen us. We're His chosen family. He's not going to forget us. And He's not going to lose us so long as we remain in Christ, being kept by our faith. And no matter what's going on around us, Peter wants us to know that that is our relationship with God. Don't forget that because God hasn't forgotten us. No matter what it looks like, God hasn't forgotten us. We're His chosen family. Back in 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 9, Peter went on as he pointed out that we are a chosen race. He goes on to say that we are a royal priesthood. John made this very same comment as he wrote the book of Revelation. In Revelation chapter 1 and verse 6, as he speaks about Jesus and what He's done for us, in Revelation chapter 1 and verse 6, he said He's made us to be a kingdom, priests to His God and Father. One translation said He has made us to be kings and priests. What is that? Royal priesthood. Chapter 5. And verse 10 of the book of Revelation. In Revelation chapter 5 and verse 10, the text there says, as the elders are praising God and praising the Lamb, they say about the Lamb that you have made them to be a kingdom and priests to our God and they will reign upon the earth. Again, one translation says, kings and priests. That's what's being demonstrated here. A royal priesthood. That's what we have been made. When we think about being a royal priesthood, it calls to mind... Melchizedek, from Genesis chapter 14, who was the king of Salem and priest of the Most High God, who was a type of our high priest, Jesus. Look in Hebrews chapter 6 and verse 19. In Hebrews chapter 6, excuse me, verse 20. In Hebrews chapter 6 and verse 20, reading on down into chapter 7 and verse 1, it says, where Jesus has entered as a forerunner for us, having become a high priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. Chapter 7, verse 1, For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, who met Abraham as he was returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. He says that Jesus was a high priest according to this order. He is a king and he's a priest. And that is what he has made us. Royal priests alongside of him. That is what we are. He is our high priest. What is a priest? Go back to Exodus chapter 28. In Exodus chapter 28, we find out what the role of the priests were. In Exodus chapter 28, we'll begin reading in verse 1. In Exodus 28 and verse 1, the text says, Then bring near to yourself Aaron your brother and his sons with him from among the sons of Israel to minister as priests to me. Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu, Eleazar, and Ithamar, Aaron's sons. You shall make holy garments for Aaron your brother for glory and for beauty. You shall speak to all the skillful persons whom I have endowed with the spirit of wisdom that they may make Aaron's garments to consecrate him that he may minister as a priest to me. These are the garments which they shall make, a breastpiece and an ephod and a robe and a tunic of checkered work, a turban and a sash, and they shall make holy garments for Aaron your brother and his sons that he may minister as a priest for me. We can go on and read so much throughout Exodus and Leviticus and other passages and find out about priests. But what does it say? It says that the priest was a minister 
for God. And that's exactly what we are when Peter's pointing out that we are a royal priesthood. He's pointing out that we are God's ministers. We're God's servants. Of course, the priests as God's ministers were ministering at the tabernacle and then at the temple. And what were they doing? They were offering those sacrifices to God. That is exactly what we are to do if we look in 1 Peter again. But this time, back up a few verses. 1 Peter chapter 2. And this time, look at verse 5. In 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 5, Peter said of us, You also, as living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Just as the Old Testament priests offered up sacrifices to God, so do we. We're not offering up, however, the blood of bulls and goats. We're offering up these spiritual sacrifices through Jesus Christ that are acceptable to God through Jesus. Look in Hebrews chapter 13. In Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 15, as it talks about what we offer up through Jesus, in Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 15 it says, Through Him then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of lips that give thanks to His name. That is what we are offering up. The fruit of our lips giving thanks to His name through Jesus Christ. This is a sacrifice that we offer. Hold your finger there, but remember what 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 9 said. As it said, we're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. Why? So that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who has called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. Why were we made these holy priests? So that we could offer up this sacrifice of praise proclaiming His excellencies, who has called us out of darkness into light. That's a sacrifice that we're offering up. We go back again to Hebrews chapter 13 and keep reading. Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 15 talks about the sacrifice of praise to God, the fruit of the lips that give thanks. Then verse 16, And do not neglect doing good and sharing, for with such sacrifices God is pleased. Doing good things, sharing with others, being generous. There's a sacrifice that we're offering up to God. Spiritual sacrifice. Look in Romans chapter 12. In Romans chapter 12 and verse 1. In Romans chapter 12 and verse 1, Paul wrote there, Therefore I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. Present your bodies as a living sacrifice. This does not mean that we will be martyrs necessarily, as Jesus was having to die a martyr's death. That could mean that, but not necessarily. But what it does most certainly mean is that we give up our lives to God's will. We become a sacrifice for Him. Our lives are no longer about us, but they're about Him. And we're offering up that sacrifice, praising God through our lives. We are His ministers. We are His servants. And our lives are to be spent serving Him, offering up our lives as a sacrifice to Him. But we go back to 1 Peter 2.9 and we find out it's not just any priesthood. We're a royal priesthood. Kings and priests reigning with Christ on the earth. This is what we are now, not what we will be someday. We are not waiting for some kingdom to come on the earth and to reign for a thousand years with Christ. We are reigning with Him even now. We are kings and priests with our high King and priest, Jesus Christ, reigning on the earth even now. That's the glory in which we partake. And Peter wants us never to forget that. 
But we have to keep in mind, of course, that this kingdom is not of this world. And so our honor and our praise does not come from this world and is not of this world. And so we do not necessarily expect to be viewed as kings and priests by this world. Christ's kingdom is not of this world. And yet He still reigns. And it's the same with us. It's not of this world. Our honor and praise will come from God. Not from men. But we are kings and priests. And Peter wants us to recognize that no matter what's happening to us, we are a royal priesthood. We're God's servants. And we need to serve Him no matter what's going on around us. Back in 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 9, he says we're a chosen race. We're a royal priesthood. We are a holy nation. The word for nation here, is different from the word that was used for race or generation, also translated country or nation in different places. It's a different word here. While that first word for race contained the idea of family, this word for nation means just that. It means nation. It refers to a group of people that live in the same land, follow the same law, and live under the same ruler. We need to keep in mind that while we are kingly priests, we submit to our King, God the Father. He is our King. He is all of our King. And we are His subjects. We are His holy nation. But one of the most interesting things about this term for nation, the Greek word here is ethnos, one of the most interesting things about this word is that while it can refer to any nation, and on occasion did refer to the Jewish nation, typically it referred to the foreign nations, to the Gentiles. In fact, sometimes simply is translated Gentiles. Look at Matthew chapter 10 and verse 5. In Matthew chapter 10 and verse 5, the 12, these 12 Jesus sent out instructing them, Matthew 10 verse 5, do not go in the way of the Gentiles and do not enter into the city of the Samaritans. The word for Gentiles here, the same word translated nation. Look in Acts 13. Acts chapter 13. Here we're going to begin reading in about verse 46. Acts chapter 13, about verse 46. Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly in Acts 13 and 46. And they said, It was necessary that the Word of God be spoken to you first. That's talking to the Jews. Since you, the Jews, repudiated and judged yourselves unworthy of eternal life, behold, we're turning to the Gentiles. Same word as used here. For so the Lord has commanded us, I have placed you as a light for the Gentiles. Same word here, that you may bring salvation to the end of the earth. When the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as had been appointed to eternal life believed. Here's the same term that's used here. Nation. Gentiles. And so when Peter, in 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 9, refers to this holy nation, there is in this word a reminder of the fact that we well, it's not the Jewish nation. But we are a holy nation. We are God's nation. It calls to memory the warning that Moses gave the Israelites in Deuteronomy chapter 32 and verse 21. In Deuteronomy chapter 32 and verse 21, Moses wrote in his song, warning the Israelites, they have made me jealous with what is not God. They have provoked me to anger with their idols, so I will make them jealous with those who are not a people. I will provoke them to anger with a foolish nation. That's us. 
That's why in 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 10, Peter went further to point out, for you once were not a people, but now you are the people of God. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. There was a time when we were not a people. God had His people. They were the Jews and we were nothing without hope in this world. But now He has made us a people. Who? His church. It's not just the Jewish people. It's His church. Whether Jewish or Gentile, those who have trusted in Christ and had their sins washed away by His blood, we are His holy nation. And we provoke jealousy in the Jewish nation. Because of their folly, Jesus was crucified, but His crucifixion opened the way for this new nation. And it has provided the way for us to be His people. And it provokes the old nation to jealousy, hopefully to the point that they will want to become a part of this new nation. And many have, many have not. But we are this nation, this people who are not a people, but are now the people of God. He's our King. We're not just any nation. Notice what kind of nation we are. We are a holy nation. And that word holy conveys the idea of something that's been consecrated and set apart, sanctified. No longer to be mundane and used for vulgar uses, but to be used for holy uses. To be used as God's tools. And so when Peter reminds us that we are a holy nation, he is pointing out that we are God's tools. We're His instruments that He uses to accomplish His work in this world. And so in 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 21, in 2 Timothy chapter 2, And verse 21, Paul said there, 2 Timothy 2.21, Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from these things, he'll be a vessel for honor, sanctified, useful to the Master, prepared for every good work. That's what we're supposed to be. We're God's tools. We are what God uses to accomplish His work in this world. We're His family, His chosen family that He will not forget. We're His servants devoted to Him, serving Him. And we are His tools. We are what He uses for His holy work to spread His gospel and to draw more into His kingdom so that they also can be a part of this holy nation. That's what we are. Set apart for His holy use. And then Peter... In 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 9, he says that we're His chosen race, we're a royal priesthood, we are a holy nation. He then says that we are a people for God's own possession. Again, borrowing language from the Old Testament. In Deuteronomy, we can find at least four places where the same concept of being God's possession is found. In Deuteronomy chapter 4 and verse 20, In Deuteronomy chapter 4 and verse 20, it says, But the Lord has taken you and brought you out of the iron furnace from Egypt to be a people for His own possession as today. In chapter 7 and verse 6, just flip over a few pages. For you are a holy people to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for His own possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. In chapter 14 and verse 2, chapter 14 of Deuteronomy, in verse 2, he says, For you are a holy people to the Lord your God, and the Lord has chosen you to be a people for His own possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. And let's just notice one more, Deuteronomy chapter 26 and verse 18. In Deuteronomy chapter 26 and verse 18, 
It says in Deuteronomy 26.18, The Lord has today declared you to be His people, a treasured possession as He promised you, and that you should keep all His commandments. We can learn from how God dealt with the children of Israel as His own special people, a people for His own possession, what that means. And we recognize, well, the first thing it means is that we are God's property. We're owned by God. He's the owner. He's the possessor. And because He possesses us and He is our owner, He's the one that gets to tell us what to do. In Deuteronomy chapter 14, as He deals with the Israelites, we see this demonstrated. Deuteronomy chapter 14, you begin reading in verse 1. He says, You're the sons of the Lord your God. You shall not cut yourselves nor shave your forehead for the sake of the dead. For you're a holy people of the Lord your God. And the Lord has chosen you to be a people for His own possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. You shall not eat any detestable thing. These are the animals which you may eat. And on He goes. He says, You're my people. So you do what I tell you. Well, God, why aren't we supposed to eat these? Because you're mine and I told you. I think we've all had parents who've done that, haven't we? I remember when I was a kid, Dad said, Son, take out the trash. Why, Dad? Because I told you. Right? God is our owner. He gets to set the rules. We are the possession, and we do not get to question the rules. We do not get to say, But God, I don't want to. He's the owner. He is the possessor. We are the possession. We are the property. And we need to just do what our Master tells us to do. Notice also Deuteronomy chapter 4. And in the context of Deuteronomy chapter 4 and verse 20, we find out that because we are gods, we are not allowed to have any other Master. He is our Master. He is the owner. We're not to follow after anyone else. In Deuteronomy chapter 4, beginning up about verse 15, Moses said to the Israelites, "...so watch yourselves carefully." Since you did not see any form on the day the Lord spoke to you at Oreb from the midst of the fire, so that you do not act corruptly and make a graven image for yourselves in the form of any figure, the likeness of male or female, the likeness of any animal that's on the earth, the likeness of any winged bird that flies in the sky, the likeness of anything that creeps on the ground, the likeness of any fish that's in the water below the earth. And beware, verse 19, not to lift up your eyes to heaven and see the sun and the moon and the stars, all the hosts of heaven, and be drawn away and worship them and serve them. Those which the Lord your God has allotted to all the peoples under the whole heaven. Why? Why not follow after them? Because the Lord has taken you and brought you out of the iron furnace from Egypt to be a people for His own possession. He's your master. He's your owner. Because He has freed you. And that's exactly what God has done. He has freed us from the bonds of sin. He says, because of that, you don't follow any other master. We just follow God. We're His possession. And while our modern sensibilities probably cringe at the concept of being called God's property, God's possession, and I have to tell you, as I prepared this lesson, and I was trying to come up with these wonderful little sub-points to help us out, I thought, oh, yes, we're God's family. Oh, this is great. We're God's servants. We're His ministers. Oh, great. We're God's tools. And I came to this one. Well, the only thing I can come up with is we're God's property, but nobody's going to like to hear that. But that's exactly what we are. And while that may offend our modern sensibilities, we need to recognize that this actually means something very good. Because since God is our owner, we can know that our owner will take care of us. Some owners don't take care of their property. Sometimes that can be said about me. I have property that's not taken well care of. But others take very good care. 
honor and value and cherish it. And that's exactly what God does with His possession, His people. In Deuteronomy chapter 26 and verse 18, it says, The Lord has today declared you to be His people, a treasured possession as He promised you, and that you should keep all His commandments. Notice verse 19, that He will set you high above all the nations which He has made for praise, fame, and honor and that you shall be a consecrated people to the Lord your God as He has spoken. God takes care of His possession. We're His possession. We're His property. And certainly that demonstrates that we're supposed to serve Him and do what He says because He said it. And certainly that means that we're not allowed to follow any other master, but we can take pride in our master and our owner because He takes care of us. Honors us, setting us up above the other nations. This is what we are. Peter wanted to remind us of this. He wanted us to realize that no matter what happens, no matter what's going on around us, no matter how bad it looks, no matter how much it might look like God has forgotten us, He has. We're a chosen race. We're God's family. We're a royal priesthood. We're God's ministers. We're a holy nation. We're God's tools. And we're a people for God's own possession. We're His property. And because of that, we can know that He'll take care of us. And He hasn't forgotten us. God knows those who are His. And we can trust Him. And we can wait on Him. And in the end, God's side wins. Never lose sight of our relationship with God because God never loses sight of His relationship with us. Keep the faith. Trust God.